0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Francis Bufford returns to Little Atoms for the third time to talk about his first novel, Golden Hill. Francis Spufford is the author of five highly praised books of non-fiction, most frequently described by reviewers as either bizarre or brilliant, and usually as both. Unapologetic has been translated into three languages, and the one before, read Plenty, into Nine. He's been longlisted or shortlisted for prizes in science writing, historical writing, political writing, theological writing, and writing evoking the spirit of place. In 2007, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. He teaches writing at Goldsmith College, University of London, and his latest book, which is described as his first novel, Golden Hill, we're going to talk about today. Francis, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So, this book... It goes back to the beginnings of the novel and it plays around with the form of the novel. So the first thing I want to talk about really is a simple question. What is a novel? But I'm going to quietly rephrase that to ask you, and you know what's coming. Why is Red Plenty not a novel?
0: Ah (laughs) I make that noise because many of the people whose, whose opinions I respect most in the world, such as my good friends, the uh, science fiction writers Kim Stanley Robinson and, and Adam Roberts, are very, very firmly of the opinion that Red Plenty was a novel and I'm really flattered by this and the part of me that's a a confirmed reader of SF gets it and thinks yes if you've got a literature in which ideas are kind of native like science fiction where explaining something is a kind of storytelling in itself then yeah maybe in science fictional terms read plenty which is about economics in the Soviet Union ladies and gentlemen brothers and sisters it's not a thrillingly dramatic subject in itself maybe it was a novel And the first five words of that book were, this is not a novel. And yes, when you say something that strongly, you're kind of inviting people to disagree if they want to. And it's up to readers to decide what it is. But I sort of meant it as well. And my reasoning, which I've I've bored my friends with and I can now bore you with on this podcast, is this. That the people in it were as alive as I could make them but the kind of life they've got keeps stopping and starting on the instructions of the explanation which the book is making the book is an explanation before it is a human drama when the explanation needs to turn left the book goes left when the explanation needs to go straight on the book goes straight on and the characters fit in around it and that seems to me to give them a life which isn't quite as complete as the characters in a novel ought to have a novel being a book about people fundamentally Mm -hmm. and Red plenty is a book about Ideas, and it's about ideas in people's lives. So the people come in, but it isn't first of all a book about people. And that is my defence for Red Plenty not quite being a novel.
1: Why did it take you so long to write a novel? Then
0: I was chicken. I was a wuss. I was a wimp. I was a coward. I can say that in many different synonymous ways. I've always been, I've always been a kind of compulsive reader of novels, but somehow for that reason writing them was more intimidating than writing any other kind of book it kind of mattered more the stakes were higher for me and in a way although I take non-fiction very seriously and I'm a I'm a strong believer in its, both its dignity and its and its power and its ability to kind of get things across that fiction can't despite that fiction seems to me to be the kind of writing which calls on most of what the author can bring to it at once it calls on your reserves of emotional intelligence and your powers of human observation and and all of that stuff at once you can't quite ration out your qualities into it the way you can with non-fiction so I was scared of revealing on the page if I wrote a novel that I basically was inadequately wise observant and and did not perhaps possess a fully working human heart or something Um, but in the end you just have to do it anyway.
1: Tell us what Golden Hill is about then how would you describe it?
0: Golden Hill is I'm still working on the elevator pitch, so I really should have got it nailed down by now since the book is out. Golden Hill is an 18th century heist movie which gets more serious as it goes. It's got one of the great standard plots of all fiction, which is about a stranger arriving in town. And it's also about making yourself up in the big city, which is one of the classic plots of New York. It's there in Great Gatsby. It's, um, it's, it's one of the big New York stories. I'm kind of riffing on it in a slightly unexpected way, I hope, because oddly, in 1746, when my protagonist, Mr Smith, suspicious name, turns up, in new york it's london where he comes from which is the big city and new york to his surprise is is a small town it's only got six or seven thousand people in it a few thousand or so are slaves and everybody knows everybody and you just don't get to be anonymous in a big city way so it's actually a book about a big city boy turning up in a very small town which happens to be manhattan with a piece of paper in his hand which is either worth a thousand pounds about half a million in modern money or nothing if it's fraudulent and in those days it took five or six weeks to get across the atlantic in each direction so it's going to take 10 to 12 weeks for them to check whether mr smith's bill of exchange is really worth a fortune or is really a piece of criminal toilet paper so that's how long the book takes to run the plot gets tightly tightly wound up with the clockwork of wondering who he is and what earth he's doing there um, and then it runs down for 10 to 12 weeks. And if I've got it right, you don't find out why he's there until the very end of of the very end. So it's a strongly plotted mystery, but it's it's a load of other stuff as well.
1: Now, this also happens to be the time, the time that the book is set also happens to be the time that the novel itself was really just starting to get going, starting to get popular, starting to get into its form. So what was those early novels like?
0: They were... They were much wilder than they would be when the novel had settled down. Back then, the name for a novel really did mean something new, and the rules hadn't yet been worked out. I mean, the big breakthrough things that make the novel at all are that it's got ordinary people rather than epic heroes in it. It's got something like ordinary time going by, so it's like you're getting a kind of synthetic real experience out of it, and it's got loads of dialogue in it. So, you know, characterization, dialogue, time, not about kings and queens... But given those things, the early novel veered wildly all over the map, like a kind of drunk mosquito trying out stuff, which would become whole genres of novel later. But there they just went kind of, we could have a robbery. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have a highwayman? Or perhaps a, a shipwreck? Or maybe, um, maybe we should fly to the moon prop- you know, in, in a basket pulled by geese. Or, or ooh, no, no, wait a minute, what about a finely observed psychological drama set entirely in one house about a rape and its aftermath or and so on like that and often the books mash together kinds of story which we think are going to belong far 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 apart on the map of literature with very serious very serious subject matter mixed together with quite farcical running around and i thought great i thought Since I'm at the beginning of writing novels there's something poetically appropriate at sort of winding back the form to the point where it's at the beginning too and it's being knocked together by journalists and women and other riffraff who don't know Latin and Greek so just make it up as they go along and give myself the freedom from the way that the novel has has settled down into being now I mean obviously i'm really ignoring three centuries of further development in the form there's lots of echoes of later novels and and i'm i can't you know i'm looking over my shoulder all the time i can't help it but it's still it's pretending to be naively back at the beginning of everything when you could do a a kind of a chase scene and a love story and an intrigue and a duel and a trial Mm -hmm. and all of which are really in the book um I, just, I, liked, I liked the lack of rules and I liked the way that it, it changed gear and changed tone of voice madly all the time back at the beginning I'm Jonathan Meads and this is Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture
1: Let's talk about how else you've gone about replicating that then. apart from as you've just described this picaresque adventure that's got all of those elements in and as you also described earlier it's, it, it starts off a terrible word I know but like a romp and becomes more serious as the book goes on. But apart from that, you've used sort of style and punctuation and things to replicate those novels.
0: It's written in a kind of imitation of the voice of an 18th-century novel as well. I spare people the constant capital letters and things, except in the bits in the middle when people are writing letters to each other. When I thought, what the hell, go with the capitals? But it's a kind of it's a kind of 21st-century compromise with with 18th century style there were some things they hadn't worked out how to do in the 18th century yet 18th century novels tended to be quite kind of stiff and exterior in the way they saw people they hadn't sussed out how to do the kind of the fundamental technology of the novel from the 19th century and after but its free and direct style where they where the kind of the camera of the novel hovers just over the shoulder of the character, and the character's perceptions bleed into into the language of the novel, it's much more like watching a play with with the front wall of the theatre taken off in a, mm-hmm. in a real 18th century novel. I didn't want it to be quite as kind of quite as as stiff an exterior as that, but I wanted some of it because the essential trick I have to play on the reader all of the way through is that we are in the viewpoint of my protagonist, Mr. Smith, and we know some things about him really intimately and really well, but there is a great big silence about what on earth he's doing and and what his objectives are. So it's like we have selective deafness about most of what he's thinking, and then and some of it we can hear loud and clear. And actually, that slightly awkward early novel voice seemed seemed rather well suited to that
1: and there's that the authorial voice that's in the book you have this third person narrator that's that's telling the story and intervening within the story commenting on the story as it goes along which again in those days was the normal thing to do nowadays it seems obvious you see that in some experimental avant-garde novel or something but this was this was the norm then
0: yeah, that's one of the things about the, the tangle of the early novel, that things that we now regard as the sign of kind of postmodern self-consciousness and it all getting a bit meta, then were just one of the, the narrative conventions. It was quite ordinary in, you know, Fielding's Tom Jones, for example, for the, for the narrator to hold forth about this and that and say, now readers, in a kind of a sort of speaking voice, a kind of let's, let's, let's zoom in on Tom and see what's happening now. I liked that. I liked the way that the narrator is is almost another character in it, and I also thought I can play with that in ways that I can't quite go into. No, indeed, for, for indeed the avoiding not. of spoilers. But but yeah, there is definitely a storyteller within mm. the novel who is kind of part of the apparatus of the of the fictional world, and that is a genuinely eighteenth century device.
1: Well, let's talk about a couple of examples of how you use that. There's there's a scene where there's a, a rather complicated card game, for instance.
0: And there are only two ways to go there. If you're going to understand the game, that the the game that's about to be played, unless you happen to be a dab hand at at piquet, a very complicated card game, the novel has to provide. It has to provide some nice lucid explanation of the rules before they get going. So you can, you know, so you can be excited so that it can work on the page like the kind of the classic poker game in a Western where the camera goes from person to person and you go kind of, ooh, ooh, one well, jacks of wild. I wonder what's going to happen next. So I could explain, or I could leave people completely in the dark, in which case it would just be strangely alienating and you'd think somebody's winning, somebody's losing, but who, what's going on? So naturally I took option C and I thought what I'll do is I'll exploit the fact that there is a, a narrator inside the story here, and I'll have them explain really badly, really badly, but kind of comically, so that so that the badness of the explanation becomes part of the, the pleasure of the scene. And if you end up confused, if you happen not to be able to play PK, which, <clears throat> putting my hand up in the studio here, I can't. If you happen not to be able to play p k you will still enjoy the game as a kind of dramatic tug of war between the different players. But I wanted to exploit that storyteller inside the inside the story so i could I could get the reader out of their depth and i I do it again at a couple of at a couple of other points which i I can't go into in too much detail, but the narrator is also out of their depth when narrating sword fighting, not very good on sex either. And generally when anything whenever anything gets a bit technical, the narrator tends to stumble. This is a a feature rather than a bug as far as as far as'm concerned well um, the,
1: the other one I was going to ask you to describe is the scene in the uh, the first time that Mr. Smith goes to Trinity Church and attends a service there
0: that's partly in there because I'm a church going little atoms contributor we're rare, but we do exist and I had made that's that's in there for multiple reasons, partly because. As a, you know, as a realist, I'm slightly affronted by the way that religion often gets vacuumed out of historical novels when it took up large amounts of, of our real ancestors' attention. So I thought, if I'm writing a novel set in 1746, and pretty much everyone in 1746 either went to church or refused to go to church in a way that they cared about, then when Sunday rolls around in my novel, there will be church. But it will also do something dramatic. So there's a bit where the novel, with its hovering camera, follows Mr Smith off to Trinity Church, which is at the end of Wall Street, and almost like a kind of transplanted Church of England parish church plopped in the middle of Manhattan. The Trinity Church that's there now is not the same one that Mr Smith goes to. It's burned down about twice since. And I thought, we'll follow him in, and beyond a certain point, we're going to have to go, whatever's happening to Mr Smith in here is actually out of reach of novels out of reach of this kind of novel anyway so if he has a religious experience if he's actually scheming and engaging in private skullduggery we're not going to know we're going to follow him into the pew and the novel's going to go mm, sorry gonna have to wait for him to come out again now. Hi
1: this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ you're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Francis Spufford and we're talking about his novel Golden Hill. And Francis, let's talk about why it's set in 18th century New York.
0: Well, for a number of reasons, some of them completely accidental, but one of the reasons is that actually the the starting point of the novel was in a, a non-fiction idea I had, because I, I discovered that in the early 1750s, I found this single sentence in a history book that said New York beat London at cricket. And I thought, hmm... And my kind of, um, my bump of writerly gold digging, dig for gold here, kind of went ee, 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 because I thought to myself, you know, why don't the Americans play cricket? Why are they the only former British colony who aren't crazy about cricket? And this shows that once upon a time, there was like a kind of cricketing prehistory to America. So I thought to myself, getting all excited in a non-fictional way you could write um, a sports history of the American Revolution. It would be the American Revolution seen through the way that cricket transmogrified into into baseball. And I went and did some reading, and I but then I I thought hang on you know nothing about baseball and hardly anything about cricket and actually the American Revolution you don't know much about why are you proposing to have to master three complete subjects before you can even begin here and thinking about it I realised that what I was most arrested by in that was not the possibility of writing reams about cricket and baseball but about Mm -hmm. the idea that New York once upon a time had been a much more British place where something like cricket belonged and I thought maybe it's storytelling i want to do here maybe what i want is to is to feel my way and invent my way back into that almost unimaginable past state of the great metropolis in which it was this little half dutch half english town in the middle of nowhere where on what's now you know in what's now city hall park then the common there was indeed a cricket pitch and i thought Non-fiction will let you zoom in on it through various, you know, various learned angles. It will let you do different kinds of history. But I don't want to do history. I want to, I want to walk into it. Same kind of impulse that made the people who did... Um, Assassin's Blade... Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed, thank you very much. You see, failed nerdship here. Assassin's Creed did a, a New York, 18th century New York set one, but a generation after after mine. But whoever did that also had this kind of loving desire to actually let you walk into the 18th century prints. Um, and that's what I wanted to do too. Um, so I, I printed out an 18th century street map, got on a plane, and started walking around lower Manhattan, of which Absolutely nothing survives from 1746. They had two sets of great fires and a war of independence, and then it became the most valuable real estate in the world. And taken together, these are recipes for absolutely everything having been knocked down. Some of the tombstones in Trinity Churchyard are still the same. Everything else gone but the street map's still there so you can still you can still follow the 18th century lanes around it's a bit like the city of london kind of pre-modern streets with these gigantic glass temples of finance rising rising out of them and i found that actually i could imagine my my way back into the city which was only 10 minutes across in walking terms little gabled dutch houses in some of the streets newer kind of georgian sash windowed english ones in other streets sea goods supplies and chandler's shops and masts swaying at the end of all of the streets and the tallest buildings six churches with you know steeples as much as 50 feet high that was one of the moments which i realized had to be a rooftop had to be a rooftop scene in the book so i could get on the street on on the rooftops of manhattan as much as 50 feet up
1: I did think of Assassin's Creed at that point when that was happening, to be honest. That's, uh, that's quite a coincidence. Yeah, well, if
0: I'd managed to remember Assassin's Creed's name correctly, I did, by this moment of mental blankness there. Um, you may correct me, but I don't recall there being... Any
1: mention of cricket in the book at all?
0: There isn't, because it happens in winter. The cricket, That's a great line. The, cricket, point. the <laughs> cricket pitch is completely snowed over at this point, but there is a duel fought on the common. Well, there may be some very faint reference to the fact that there is a cricket pitch under underneath the snow somewhere, but I carefully snowed out all possibilities of cricket because I thought. If I keep the cricket in, apart from the fact I don't know enough for an 18th century cricket, it's sure to be a highly specialised study and will cause people to write in with wisdom in their hand, going, I think you'll find the battle was more hexagonal or something. As well as all that, I thought I will default back to my old non-fiction mode if I, if I let the cricket be there. The cricket will be a strange attractor, which will get me behaving historically rather than imaginatively. So bury the cricket under the snow and force the people to do non-cricket things all the way through.
1: But that cricket would have only been one other aspect of things that you had to heavily research in this book. Let's talk about how you did that.
0: Well, the secret I mean the secret of research for historical fiction is that you never need that much detail about any one thing so long as they're the right details and so long as they're the details that kind of awake your reader's senses, so long as it, it, it's pushing in history through people's kind of nose and ears and eyes and, and taste buds. So I'm glad it seems as if it's really, really well researched. In fact it's only just exactly well researched enough I kept reading until I got the detail that made me go aha that's the thing that's what will give me the taste of 18th century coffee that's what will tell me what the walls of an 18th century dining room looked like that's what will tell me that if you went for dinner in an 18th century dining room they would serve everything all at once so they hadn't invented the kind of the formal dinner course structure that started with soup and heads through to pudding you just get everything on the table like a kind of gigantic tapas feast but so long as you can get the right details then the kind of the scenery doesn't have to be that thick this is not a work of ingenious learned scholarship this is a work of making it up held together with artful small loops of of historical glue.
1: Well talking about some of the senses you mentioned that this is it's a city that's the population is roughly a hundredth of the size of London's at this time and it's a much cleaner place.
0: It is. I mean, that was one of the surprises, reading about the American colonies, that already by the middle of the 18th century, the inhabitants of the 13 colonies were much healthier and much taller than Brits at home because their cities were tiny so they didn't get any of the the vile diseases you'd catch living in in London in a city with 700,000 people and no sewer system, for example. People ate meat, they had free firewood so they tended not to die of cold during during the winter because you could just wander out into a wood and chop some trees down. And it's not that they had sort of fabulous technologies of soap and things that the old world didn't have it's just that there weren't very many of them they lived some way apart and they hadn't yet got the sort of teeming anthill problems that european cities were were developing at that point so if like my mr smith you landed in new york then you'd suddenly notice that hardly anybody had smallpox scars and they didn't have withered arms or rickets or deficiency diseases far fewer people were throwing up in the gutter because they they had a, a serious gin addiction problem um and there weren't kind of revolting dysentery related smells in uh, on on every on every street corner it's like for mr smith in some ways it's like time traveling some way towards towards our world it's a journey into strangeness in some ways but it's also a journey towards familiarity i like that it's like it's like a kind of an early installment of the modern world has been has been delivered in this in this teeny tiny new york
1: we've already mentioned the um, the service at the the original trinity church there's a number of different denominations here everybody seems to be rubbing along together quite well I mean unless you're Catholic or French, but apart from that it's
0: it's one of the kind of the unpleasant historical n- ironies that religious pluralism begins certainly it begins in the kind of the english speaking world as as a space created inside Protestantism. Protestants agreed to stop persecuting each other and and to get along together long before they agreed that that kind of that kind of freedom should be extended to anybody else and at this point New York and I was also thinking about kind of Northern Ireland and Ulster Unionists. in some way the the settlers behave quite like Ian Paisley Ian Paisley supporting Northern Irish Protestants they are signed up to a picture of the world which have in which the Pope is represents the forces of darkness and this isn't quite as mad as it sounds because In the early 18th century, there's essentially a kind of ideological world war going on in which the northern European Protestant countries who do representative government, not democracy yet, but, you know, parliaments and laws and some kind of primitive sense of of individual rights, are lined up against um, France and Spain as the the Spanish superpowers, which are also identified with, with absolute monarchy. So a Protestant in 1746 would have taken it absolutely for granted that Protestants meant freedom, truth, light, goodness, motherhood and apple pie, whereas Catholics meant thumbscrews, the Inquisition, darkness, superstition and tyranny. So they feel very, very self-righteous in hating Catholics. They hate Catholics because they love freedom. They also love the king because at that point that's lined up together as well they were an intensely loyalist and and royalist bunch and i i liked the irony of that i liked i liked the shock of discovering that that one generation before the american revolution they were by british terms almost embarrassingly loyal and royalists constantly raising a glass on the king's birthday and and waving union jacks They hate the French in 1746 in just the way that they're going to hate tyrannical old King George III a generation later. And they use some of the same slightly paranoid accusations as well. And that's not it. This is the beginning of a whole fascinating, not very lovely current of paranoia in American culture for the whole of the rest of American history. Some Americans are constantly going to be discovering that their own government is run by, is is actually an insane tyranny. The kind of things that people say now about Obama, that evil Kenyan socialist, and used to say if you were against the New Deal about Roosevelt and, and said about JFK because he was a Catholic and you know what they're like. I mean, that that stuff has been running right through American history. Liberation on one side, on another side, quite kind of darkened and, and hate-filled stuff out of the sump of the human psyche, and I liked the way you could get both in together.
1: I'm Natalie Haynes, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's a scene where there's, there's a burnt-out fort in the city, and there's a scene where... Mr Smith comes across that fort for the first time and there's a row of scouts nailed to a board. And of course the reader thinks, oh, OK, they've killed some Native Americans. But no, that's not what they are.
0: No, they aren't. Um, at that point, they were just about to stop doing this, but but I was delighted to find that in 1746 they were still at it. They paid the Mohawk Indians who came from further up the Hudson River Valley to scalp any French settlers they found trespassing on what they regarded as a kind of as a, a British and Dutch patch. So those were those were French scalps. They they were they were using Native Americans as a weapon pointed at French people. But then this is something that the the Enlightenment. Is checkered with little bits of darkness like that. It's only enlightened in some ways, and just when you think, ah, the modern world, I get it, we're in a culture of rights and reason. You suddenly trip over something like a board covered in human scalps, or a, or a particularly vile legal punishment, or or something like that. It's it's a strange mixture of the enlightened and the and the pitch dark.
1: My partner's American, and. I remember having a conversation with her about Guy Fawkes' night, and she hadn't heard of it, thought it was a weird thing. Um, she's also Catholic. And I'm surprised to find in this story a huge Guy Fawkes' night bonfire.
0: It was very, very big in the 13 colonies before, before independence. Whereas back in Britain it was just a kind of bog-standard anti-Catholic, yay us, thank you thank you God for saving us from, from dangers thing. In America it became this enormous all purpose rite of exorcism for everything that people were afraid of and hated. It was a it was a, a festival of, of ceremoniously burning the other, whatever it was, which included not only Guy Fawkes for trying to blow up the houses of Parliament, but also um, a great big papier mache pope and and the pretender, who was the, the you know, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the Stuart claimant to the throne so that's that's evil catholics evil subverting secret saboteurs and um evil absolute monarchs who want to want to come and take our rights from us and they called it pope day and it was a huge deal right up to the Revolution. There were some really good descriptions of Pope Day in Boston, for example, and it was one of those nights of... It was a, it was a kind of feast of misrule kind of thing. It was one of those nights where the apprentices run amuck, and the grown-ups go, OK, and they just go indoors and, and throw the bolts and just leave the teenagers to, to make licensed havoc till morning. And I thought, you know, Mr Smith is a stranger. This is a feast of fearing strangers, so really not a great night for him to go and look at the bonfire which of course naively he does with hilarious or terrible consequences
1: i want to spend some time talking about economics now you've already mentioned oh that-
0: must we N- <laughs> Neil, no no
1: <laughs> mr smith turns up with a bill for a thousand pounds not a check no nope. a bill
0: yeah let's talk about what that means a Bill of exchange—they they still exist and they still get used in business a lot in places like India, for example. A bill of exchange is a way of piggybacking on a trade route to do money transfer. It basically is a thing where you find somebody who owes money to a merchant in the place you're setting out for, and they themselves are in the place you're going to. So you find somebody who is owed a debt by someone in your destination. You pay the debt. Yourself, and they give you a piece of paper which transfers the debt to you. So you can then travel across the Atlantic, for example, turn up in New York, and go. By the way, you now owe me this money, and that's what Mr. Smith has done. But it's a very disruptive thing to do if if it's for a lot of money, um, because people. I mean, bills of exchange were for any amount, but if somebody turns up without warning, then you'd expect it to be for you know. A few quid, which is already a sizable sum, imagine a kind of, you know, 500 fold decrease or increase in the value of money so that a pound is worth about 500 pounds. If you turn up with a bill exchange for 10 pounds, you're asking, you know, contemporary terms for 5000 quid, which is a, a reasonable amount of money. But if you suddenly turn up with a bill of exchange for a thousand pounds that's that's half a million that's enough to to blow a hole in the working capital of the business you present it to and possibly start bank runs panics rumors about kind of loss of credit worthiness and and to kind of maybe tip over the economic balance of a of a whole small town so what mr. Smith has turned up with is actually a kind of piece of weaponized finance though he doesn't fully understand that and the way he gets treated extraordinarily kind of gingerly in some ways and in other ways with respect and in other ways as if as if he's the most threatening thing to come along that year is a reflection of his power to do harm that he hasn't quite realized and with any luck the reader will will work out just how destructive this piece of paper is potentially at about the same speed mr smith does one of the technical problems i found interesting writing it is that you don't want to do an info dump you don't just want to go here's how bills of exchange work you want people to find it out naturally so i hope that i've kind of gently gently sprinkled in my my 18th century financial law in a way that you hardly notice when you're when you're reading it but if you like that kind of thing if for example you liked my previous book read plenty about soviet central planning then what you might like about this one is that it's about it's about the problems of asymmetric information in an early modern credit network um not it's not more exciting than that i hope so it's about it's about turning up with a shitload of money and everybody being terrified that's what it's about but those those are both descriptions of the same thing
1: um well i think one of the things that was most surprising to me about early New York in the book was so Mr. Smith turns up with a bill for half a million pounds, mm. and they immediately say, "Well, we don't have that much money. There's not that much money in the town," which seems reasonable. But one of those reasons is there isn't a currency no. as
0: such. This is one of this was one of my discoveries, which I thought was 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 extremely fictionally interesting is that they don't they didn't have a coined currency they they ran a series of separate currencies denominated in pounds shillings and pence for each of the 13 colonies all of which were worth different amounts relative to the pound sterling so that I um, think there were some incredibly soft currencies you could get 40 Rhode Island pounds to a pound sterling and it was about one to one for Maryland pounds for example but all of these currencies existed in, in account books because they didn't, they didn't actually have enough silver to do coins. So what you had was a, a lunatic mass of simultaneous overlapping competing public and private systems of, of paper money all in really odd denominations. So if somebody gave you change, you'd end up with a fistful of paper and denominations like ninepence, or two shillings and fourpence, or 23 shillings and, and eight pence, all of which had different values depending on which pounds the bits of paper referred to. And everybody in the colonies appears to have been operating some kind of incredibly rapid um, foreign exchange calculator in their heads all the time. And what's nice about that, from my point of view, apart from the fact that that's nerdily interesting, is that it tips back the scales of advantage because, you know, I'm not saying what Mr Smith is, but supposing he was a con man of some kind, then the advantage will be on his side. He'd be trying to put something over on the innocent rubes of New York City. But instantly the scales tip back if it turns out that his cunning plan to make off with a with a thousand of their finest pounds is, you know, is rather defeated by the fact that they have a financial system he can't even understand. The opportunities for them to cheat him are suddenly are suddenly live and vivid as well and I wanted that sort of power balance to tip intricately backwards and forwards all the time and Of course, very important in that is that whatever kind of liar Mr. Smith is when he gets to New York, he finds he's very much not the only one there, and he bumps into another kind of quite dangerous liar in the shape of Tabitha Lovell, who is the book's heroine, his, his opposite number, and the frustrated and clever daughter of the merchant who he, he's asked to cash, his, to cash his bill. And she makes it her job and her pleasure and her recreation to try and work out what on earth he's doing and to trip him up if possible I think I can say that without giving too much away
1: This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, I'm talking to Francis Spufford about his novel Golden Hill, and Francis, you just introduced Tabitha, we'll come back to her in a moment before we do, and some of the other characters, but before we do, I just wanted to talk about slavery, which is one of the themes of this book, and something which I think people expect to see in a story about a tobacco plantation in the Deep South or something, and not necessarily... what we would still even at that time think of as the enlightened northeast
0: the thing is that the division that suggests kind of south slavery north no slavery is a later development it was settling into place by the by the end of the 18th century but but in the middle of the 18th century the picture was much more mixed and new york which made its living at that point trading with the slave-run sugar plantations of of the west indies they sold flour to feed flour and kind of dried peas to feed the slaves in on the sugar plantations new york had a quite slavery heavy economy about you know a thousand to fifteen hundred slaves in a population of six or seven thousand altogether and that doesn't compute with our our later sense of of what the north was like and what new york ought to be like it's supposed to be you know it's supposed to be a city of, of liberation, a place where you cut loose and become free, but it wasn't that to begin with, and lots of lots of people we think of as enlightenment figures who lived in the north in the American eighteenth century turn out to have been involved in uncomfortable ways in slavery. Benjamin Franklin owned slaves. Benjamin Franklin celebrated his early prosperity as a printer by um, buying slaves as children because you could get them nice and cheap and 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 increase your money rapidly that way but Benjamin Franklin is a kind of case in point of what happened by the end of his life he's a convinced abolitionist he's he's freed his slaves he's campaigning against both the trade and the institution but it's not how it began like that and if you go to New York now there is a there is a thing called um, the African burial ground which is now in the basement of a federal building just north of city hall park which is the slave's cemetery from the 18th century city and um, they they dug down to it while they were while they were sinking the foundations and there very touchingly but with a great deal less dignity and kind of and monumental pride and a lot more anonymity than the white people's cemetery up the road in in trinity churchyard you can see the bones, and in some cases, the kind of the buried bodies of the city slaves, kind of wrapped in wrapped in cloth, with um, sometimes buried in an interestingly Muslim way, suggesting that they kept their West African Muslim culture, but people taken a very very long way from home and given very brutal lives, um, and that belongs centrally in the in the early history of New York. It's it's gotta be in there. Otherwise you're doing nostalgia tourism.
1: I want to spend the rest of the show talking about some of the characters. And normally early on in one of these interviews I'm talking about a novel, I would say let's talk about the characters. Your protagonist, Mr Smith, he's he's arrived in New York pretty much to start life anew, he suggests. Until later on in the book, with no particular past, um, he's there on a particular mission that's a secret, and his identity is a secret. So, apart from the few things we've already said, I'm struggling to think about what else we can talk about. It. What else can you say?
0: I have created a kind of a kind of thicket of spoilers that i mustn't i mustn't utter here um but we can say this that that he he falls in love and also finds an opponent in tabitha Lovell, the the daughter of the merchant he's brought his bill to he finds himself friends with the governor's secretary septimus oakeshott um and through those two relationships finds himself passing, you know, at a bit of a sprint through many different kinds of rooms in New York with many different kinds of of human scenery in them. He does some amateur theatricals. um, He's part of a trial. He sinks into the gutter and gets put in prison uh, twice. Um, And um, he also leads the high life which is one of the ways, in fact, in which the book is traditionally 18th century. Um, 18th century readers of picaresque novels felt that they weren't getting their money's worth if they didn't get a tour all the way from the palace to the gutter and back again. So that's that's what I've tried to provide. But the main characters are Smith and Septimus and Tabitha, but around them are ranked further circles of kind of friends and families and things, because it's a small town. Everyone knows everyone and everything you say in one context leaks out of it and turns up as gossip in other contexts so mr smith may think when he turns up that he's a he's a free agent who can um who can kind of busk it and blag his way through through anything but in fact his earlier utterances catch up with him really fast and by the end of the book it's all that he can do to keep his keep his head above water
1: Tabitha Again, there's only so much we can say about her without giving away some of the secrets of the book. But she's very much not a typical love interest for a novel of this sort, is she?
0: No, she's not. Um, Well, and she is in that she is obviously the person who is as clever and charming and interesting as Smith. And she's very good looking, because why not? But no, psychologically speaking, she is, she is not the heroine of, of your standard 18th century novel. And in some ways she's come out the way she has, and I know I'm talking in coded terms here. Because I was interested in why in kind of historical fiction now and pop culture generally... We seem to have settled on the idea of of kind of the ass kicking heroine, the kind of the girl with spirit as the only way for for a woman in the past to have a to have a strong character and that strikes me as pretty unhistorical um and that if you genuinely came across somebody who really did break all the rules of their society which which Tabitha kind of does, it wouldn't be because she was anything as easy to handle as just defiant and spirited. When Tabitha breaks the rules, it's it's not because she's a girl of spirit. Other stuff is is going on there, which I hope people will be interested enough to stick with. Um, I'm very fond of Tabitha. I've noticed that she tends to polarise people. She's a slightly Marmite character. Um, I find her extremely sympathetic and, and I like her, but some people reading it Um, possibly particularly women reading it, have reported that they hate
1: her. I liked her, I thought she was a a great character, just for the record. Um, Septimus Oakeshott, who meets Mr Smith in not the most auspicious circumstances to begin with, but they, they soon become friends, and obviously we won't go in to talk about again how those relationships develop, but... Another great character, I really loved him. How much can you say about him? Because again, he's an interesting character for that for a, a novel of this type.
0: He is a sleek, porcelain skinned, beautifully turned out eighteenth century gay man who looks a bit like a Toby jug. And whereas at the beginning you you see Mr Smith as the the cool self-possessed adventurer and Septimus as as rather more of a a figure out of kind of drawing room farce or something. Um, Actually, Septimus has many of the qualities you first think Smith has in the way of adventurousness and Smith turns out not to have them. Smith is more hapless and clumsy than he first seems whereas Septimus has hidden depths. Um, I can't say much more than that, can I? Um,
1: <laughs> no, you can't give much more away without giving away some uh, key elements of the plot. So so let's not do that. And let's talk about, let's widen out that circle that you talked about. So there's the Lovells and the Van Loons. These are the merchants that Mr Smith presents his bill to. Tell us about those. And I want to talk also about, I guess, Governor Clinton and the Chief Justice Delancey. There is a Delancey Street. Were these people based on real historical characters? Um,
0: Judge Delancey and Governor Clinton are absolutely historical. Though I gave myself total license to to invent their characters, and these two real people are in the middle of a famous political standoff at the point when I've had Mister Smith turning up. Governor Clinton, which is, and it sounds such an American name. It sounds like it sounds like Bill, but it's not. Governor Clinton was an extremely ineffectual Whig with an H from England with a receding chin who was one of the most disastrously ineffectual royal governors of the of the province of New York. He turned up from England, was befriended by the wily Machiavellian, very clever George de Nancy, who persuaded him that it would be a, a lovely gesture of trust if he gave the Assembly of New York power to vote his salary. And once he'd done that, they had him over a barrel because they never voted him any salary at all. He spent, he and Septimus who's I've given him as a secretary spent years skint and hogtied while their opponents ran rings around them and Judge Delancey is great I was slightly inspired by by the monstrous judge in um Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian though he's not as bad as he's not as bad as that but um no he's a he's a kind of sacred monster is the judge and Part of Smith's problem is that he is he has walked into the middle of this, of this hair-triggered political standoff without understanding what the stakes are. Um, and his thousand pounds would be enough to tip it in one direction or another. So there's him. There's the there's the kind of political wing of the of the city. Um, the Lovells um, are English merchants, but Mr. Lovell has only got daughters, and the Van Loons are Dutch merchants, and the Van Loons have got sons. So They are planning a merger, um, and in later generations there will be one house of of Lovell and Van Loon, um, and this is the moment where... Where the Dutch of New York are stopping speaking Dutch and are just turning into like kind of old New Yorkers, grand merchant aristocrats, the kind of people who, you know, give them another couple of centuries and they'll be Roosevelts and Vanderbilts and all of those people with Dutch surnames. So there's there's them. There's also the the slaves world and, and the, the low life world in the taverns. There is the coffee world. Coffeehouse world because New York, like London, revolved around its coffeehouses. Except they only had two of them. It was a small town, but everything in the kind of homosocial men's world happened happened in the coffeehouse. Kind of gossip and intrigue and deal making and law. Oh yes, and then there's the legal world because um, Judge Delancey flits between the political world and and the legal one. He's the chief justice of the of the Supreme Court and this is this is a world pitched on the cusp between kind of pre-modern and modern so we're in a place where where the michaelness law term is running and people are still keeping the church feasts in a kind of slightly fading protestant kind of way um, and having banquets for the king so the novel moves between a series of parties of various kinds in high life and low life some more violent and dangerous than others
1: just one other character from the book i want to talk about the captain that mr smith meets in his first spell in the jail where did he come from
0: probably my id i think from the, the dark and murky sump of my psyche because he he comes from the dark and murky sump of the city's psyche he is in there like a kind of like a kind of recurring bad memory of the the cruel and dark things that the enlightenment hasn't banished yet and maybe will never manage to to banish um he is the filthy incredibly evil smelling insufferably chirpy other prisoner in the next cell along when mr smith gets banged up and to begin with he only seems to be a nuisance but what smith is forced to listen to and we're forced to listen to as well is actually the kind of the rancid underside of the city's of the city's pride in itself because the captain turns out to be the the kind of domesticated troll really that that the city keeps to do its dirtiest work and for reasons i can't go into there is a particular horror for mr smith in what the captain turns out to have done cheerfully because somebody stood him a drink
1: One final question then, and then we'll finish. So have you caught the fiction bug now?
0: Yeah, but I haven't given up non-fiction. I insist on this. I've got four ideas in my head, but three of them are novels, I have to say. Because having dared to do it, I find I love the freedom of being able to imagine something right through. To make explanation the servant of imagination instead of imagination the servant of explanation.
1: I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resnor's FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. That's it for me, but before we finish, can I get you to read us a little piece?
0: Certainly. This is Mr Smith looking through a doorway and seeing Lovell's daughters looking back at him. What a difference a frame makes. To Mr Smith gazing inward... The uprights of the painted door seemed to set out the three of the women like some tableau representing the new world itself, of which his acquaintance to that point totaled 47 minutes, and which, therefore, he could not yet feel to be entirely solid, entirely terra firma, as ordinarily founded on its bed of earth, but only to constitute a kind of scene, backed by drops and flats, where you must step forth at your cue to act your part, "'ready or not, ignorant as yet of the temper of the audience, "'ignorant of the temper of the other players, "'which will so much determine the drama you compose together, "'turn by turn, speech by speech, line by line.' "'The blonde one was extremely pretty, "'with a wide mouth of candid pink. "'The dark one not much less so, "'though she seemed to have just left off scowling "'and her brows met in a knot. "'The African was turning eyes black as licorice on him, "'in a gaze of perfect blankness. "'Thus Smith, on the one side, gazing in. "'To the three gazing outward, however, "'into the dark of the stairwell where a face had bloomed "'and two pale hands clutching paper, "'he had only appeared in the ordinary aperture of an ordinary day. "'For them, the blue-grey pediment of Connecticut pine "'faced the everyday world, as it always did, "'and they were their everyday selves.' well-launched, it seemed to them, into the middle of their histories, with love, sorrows, resentments, hopes, all far advanced and long settled already into three familiar fortunes. He was the one unshackled, as yet unconfined, the one from whom diversion or news or any other of the new worlds a stranger may contain were to be expected and perhaps desired. For if your fortune at present is not such as pleases you, there is a prospect of mercy as much as of doom in the thought that fortune is fickle. The goddess's renown is all in her changeableness, and strangers are her acknowledged messengers. They bear with them a glimmering of new chances. When this stranger came forward to the threshold, he could be seen to be a youth of about four and twenty, dressed in plain green, wearing his own hair in short rust-brown curls, smiling in a fashion that crinkled the freckles across his nose, and staring shamelessly. Hello, he said.
1: So I've been talking to Francis Spufford about his novel Golden Hill, which is out now from Faber and Faber Books. Francis, thanks so much for coming in and telling me about it
0: thanks for having me again.
1: You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast
0: on Resonance 104.4 FM.
1: You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms.
0: If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.